from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 29th. Today, the heat wave overtaking the Northwest, why vaccination disparities persist in Philadelphia, and how to have a better week. What kind of temperatures are we seeing in the Pacific Northwest right now? We are seeing absolutely bonkers temperatures in the Pacific Northwest. Sarah Kaplan is a climate reporter for The Post. She talked with producer Emma Talkoff. Basically, since Saturday, Portland has set a new all-time temperature record every day. On Monday, it was 115 degrees here. In Salem, the capital of Oregon, it was 117 degrees, which happens to match the all-time record for Las Vegas. These are temperatures that you would expect in the Southwest or in the Middle East. These are not temperatures you expect in a really temperate, wet, cool place like the Pacific Northwest. The thing that's causing this heat wave is this huge heat dome. So that's kind of a very tall mass of hot air that's kind of sitting on top of the region. And it's so big and so self-reinforcing that it kind of redirects weather systems around it and it's very difficult to dissipate. What does that look like in a place that's totally not prepared for that kind of temperature? Yeah, it's really been challenging for everybody to cope with it. Because the Northwest doesn't usually experience these temperatures, buildings are not built to shed heat. Um, A lot of people don't have air conditioning. Seattle and Portland are among the top two cities for lack of access to air conditioning in the country. And I mean, even the infrastructure is not ready. So yesterday there were alerts about asphalt from roads kind of melting and buckling. The Portland streetcar had to suspend service because its power cables were being degraded in the heat. And people were just like desperate to find anywhere they could to cool off. It's especially difficult for the people who have no option to escape the heat. People who are unhoused or who work outside in construction or farm workers. And those folks are really vulnerable because neither they nor the companies they work for or the systems that serve them are really prepared to handle this kind of thing. What are the dangers for people in those kinds of temperatures, just physically? So heat is actually the deadliest kind of weather disaster. It can really overwhelm the body's ability to respond and cause really severe damage. So heat illness is just generally when your body starts getting stressed and your skin will turn red, you'll start to get dizzy, your blood pressure drops because you're so depleted of water and blood is mostly water. And then heat stroke is actually when your organs start shutting down because your body is no longer able to maintain its internal temperature. And both Portland and Seattle saw a record number of heat-related visits to emergency departments over the weekend. You know, normally Portland will see maybe like one visit a day, maybe no visits a day. Between Friday and Sunday, Multnomah County, which includes Portland, had 43 emergency department visits. So that's like 
almost half of the visits the county usually sees in an entire summer. So that just sort of gives you a sense of the scale to which people are suffering. What is the role of climate change in this kind of heat wave? So scientists often caution that when you're in the middle of an extreme weather event like this, you can't say definitively how much of it was made worse or more extreme by climate change. But this event definitely does have like all of the characteristic fingerprints of climate change. We know that the Pacific Northwest has already warmed about two degrees Fahrenheit since the pre-industrial era because of human greenhouse gas emissions. We know that this region is becoming hotter and drier, especially in the summer. And having that backdrop of higher temperatures and drier conditions makes heat domes like this more severe and more persistent. And we also know that this is not the first heat dome to happen this year. I mean, just like 10 days, not even two weeks before this, the Southwest was going through a very similar extreme heat event that set records. And now the Northeast is going through an extreme heat wave. So extreme heat events like this are definitely something that we can expect more of as the climate changes. We definitely know that they're going to be longer. We definitely know they're going to be more intense. I mean, just think about the fact that like all of these records that were set over the weekend then had to be rewritten on Monday because things just got hotter. Um, and I feel like that's really, you know, an indicator of what the summers of the future will look like, that records are just going to be broken and then rebroken constantly because things just continue to heat up because people haven't reduced greenhouse gas emissions and taken the kind of action needed to prevent the planet from warming further. I think especially on the West Coast, even if there are high temperatures, usually it kind of cools down at night. Is that happening or is it just staying hot? Yeah. I mean, that's like another really big problem is that, you know, I checked my the internal thermometer in my car on Sunday night and it was 8.30 and it was still 104 degrees. So it's really not, you know, even once the sun is starting to set, it's taking a really long time to cool down. And that's really bad too, because it means that the body doesn't have this chance to recover overnight. And that's also, you know, one of many indicators of the role that climate change is playing in this event. One of the things we know about climate change is that it's causing nights to heat up even faster than days are. So, you know, the minimum temperature that you usually experience during the summer or during a heat wave is, is rising and getting hotter. You know, it's bad for people. It's bad for wildlife. It's also bad for firefighters because firefighters often depend on the way things kind of cool off and humidity rises at night to sort of get control of flames. They say that fires often kind of settle down at night. And if it doesn't cool off, then that's not going to happen. And that makes fires a lot more difficult to fight. How are people coping? What are people doing to stay safe, especially vulnerable populations like the elderly or people experiencing homelessness, like you mentioned? Farm workers are starting work really early in the morning, basically as soon as the sun rises or even earlier to try to, you know, harvest before the day starts to get really hot. Counties have opened up cooling stations with air conditioning and water, and hundreds of people are going there. The governor in Oregon actually lifted coronavirus capacity limits on places like movie theaters and pools and malls because she was like, 
those are air-conditioned places and people need to be able to go. Otherwise, you're kind of just like waiting for the heat to break. I mean, today is a, you know, compared to 115 yesterday, today's high is supposed to be in like the mid-90s. But in central Oregon and Washington, temperatures are still expected to be high for another few days. And that's another sign of, you know, just the role that climate change is playing. Another thing we know about climate change is that it makes these extreme events last longer. You know, you hear people talk about the new normal and a lot of scientists, I said, like, this isn't the new normal. This is like just a taste of even worse things to come. It's not normal because things are just going to keep changing and getting even more extreme. Sarah Kaplan is a climate reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. The CDC released a bunch of data looking at vaccination rates by county, but not just vaccination rates by county, kind of racial and ethnic data. And so counties that had the highest percentage of Black residents had some of the lowest vaccination rates. And Philly is the nation's largest predominantly Black city, Black county. And so we focused our attentions there. Akila Johnson reports on health disparities for The Post. And what we found at the beginning is Philly's vaccination rates, particularly as it pertained to the Black community, were really low. And over the course of the months, Philly now has one of the highest vaccination rates. However, the gap between the Black and the white community persists. And so the question becomes why? You know, why is this gap persisting? Why is it so entrenched? How did it start? How did we get here? What can we do about it? And what we found is it's really complicated. The city was very intentional about wanting equity to be a priority in its vaccination efforts, but there's a difference between intention versus impact. And there were some missteps and some miscalculations where the city admits that it it, it just hadn't kind of considered how interconnected and entrenched social inequality and racial inequality is and the way it fuels health disparities. So how did you go about this process of understanding what was going on behind the scenes to help improve the chances that Black people in Philly were going to be able to be vaccinated? In asking that question, we found and uh, were kind of directed towards Dr. Wakama, who is an ER physician at Penn Medicine, who was very much involved in community vaccination efforts. So I guess to set the stage or to give you kind of this uh, background as to what the ER looks like. So I come into my shift. Um, there are people in the hallways. That's a usual- In the week leading up to Penn Medicine's final community vaccination clinic, I'd asked Dr. Wakama to record just audio journals of basically the sights and sounds in the ER, her observations, the type of conversation she was having with patients. When the vaccines first came out, she had her own kind of hesitation. Her reaction was kind of like, whoa, 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 this happened really quick. So she did a lot of research. And when she kind of came to the conclusion that they were safe, they were effective, and this was something that we needed as a society to really do, it kind of became her personal mission because she thought, as a Black woman, as a Black physician, 
I need to kind of step up and share the knowledge that I have. And if I, as a medical person, had all of these questions and had to do this research, she said, I can only imagine what the lay community is thinking and feeling. And so she started to become really involved with this vaccination effort that Penn Medicine was doing for a while. But then she also just brought it into her regular practice and standards of care. So I was in the room with the patient that I was talking to about COVID and, you know, asking him why he didn't want to get the vaccine. And he basically was like, oh, I didn't want to get it. If I don't need to get it, I'm not going to get it. I've been through the worst of COVID and I didn't get sick. So why should I get it now? She said it's not good enough just to ask. And then when people say yes or no, stop there. You kind of have to push beyond people's reasons and and examine those. And so a lot of the things that she hears, you know, are people worried about side effects and being sick. And I tried to explain to him that, you know, we're trying to do this thing called herd immunization. And, you know, we need a majority of the population to be immunized for us to have like a collective immunization and that COVID is not over and you still can get very sick from it. And, and what she's that. doing in terms of having these conversations with basically everyone who comes into the ER and is able to have a conversation with her, like, is that something that has been mandated by the hospital or is that something that she is basically taking upon herself to do on her own? No, it is definitely something she is taking upon herself to do on her own. And it's it's very much become like part of her own personal mission. I do feel a pull and a responsibility to be a, a practitioner in underserved communities because of this very reason. I do feel like I'm well equipped to address some of these issues. I'm well equipped to interact and have some type of rapport with these patients because of my background. And, and you know, she, she talks about the way that the ER is structured. I mean, she sees two to three new patients every hour. While I'm on shift taking care of patients, I am constantly being asked to uh, field calls from the field. EMS calls us and asks questions. So it is not a place that lends itself to having kind of extensive conversations on COVID. You know, having these kind of directed discussions for a long, prolonged period of time is very, very difficult. And so she takes the time, you know, she she makes the effort and she prioritizes the time that it takes to sit and really talk to people and educate them. And what are some of the things that come up in these conversations of reasons why people say, look, I just don't think that I want to get vaccinated right now? There's a lot of misinformation, mistrust and fear. You know, a lot of these conversations very much, like I say, go back to fear of the side effects. Yesterday, I had a sweet, sweet, sweet 90-year-old man that came in. He was confused and weak. And I asked the family, he had a granddaughter who was a nurse at the bedside, if he had gotten the COVID vaccine. She said no. She said she's been fighting her family for the past two months, um, she had gotten a COVID vaccine. Everyone else in the family had gotten a COVID vaccine, except for the old grandfather, because they, quote unquote, do not want the vaccine to take him out. You know, I don't want to I don't want to get sick off the vaccine as a common refrain she, she hears. So that was kind of a hard battle because I was actually speaking to the person who understood the importance of the vaccine and those are her family members that were not there that I couldn't really impart any wisdom to. 
And so that's the, you know, the chills and the arm ache and the possible fever. And, you know, people, some people may have a can't take time off of work or they're they're just fearful of those side effects. Well, which I think is a thing that people don't talk about enough, how the side effects isn't just, oh, I don't feel like getting sick, but the side effects are, if I get sick, I can't take time off my job or I don't know how I'm going to sort out childcare if I'm in bed for several days. And, and I feel like that's not necessarily the way that we talk about the deterrence to vaccination. Well, absolutely. And so, you know, quite often, so she had a 33-year-old mother come in, and that was the reason the woman, you know, she had two two small children, two young children. And unfortunately, she was there because she was symptomatic of COVID, and she ended up testing positive for COVID. And so then, you know, after she tests positive for COVID, and now it's like a whole host of other issues that she has to contend with, then it's, well, as soon as this is over, I'm going to get my you know, my COVID shot. And so it really comes down to explaining to people and and and, and walking people through the short-term pain is not as bad as kind of the long-term effects of having to, what happens when you have COVID and then having to isolate. Now it's just not a couple of days off of work, but it's, you know, a couple of weeks possibly, if not more off of work. So really walking people through risk analysis that people are doing, she spends a lot of time doing that. I also wonder about like, long-term access to healthcare, right? Like people's just like general connection with the healthcare system. So a big thing was after she has these conversations, you know, removing the misinformation, helping a lot of mistrust after she gets over these barriers, then she says, well, I'm telling people to go to various pharmacies to get vaccines or to talk to their primary care physicians. But she also knows that telling people to do those things, particularly talking to their primary care physicians, is not a guarantee that they will then have access to, number one, information, further information if she hasn't answered their questions or information about scheduling and appointments because a lot of her patients don't actually have primary care physicians. And there's been some research that really kind of highlights the kind of healthcare deserts that exist in Philadelphia where people who live in overwhelmingly Black neighborhoods in Philadelphia are 28 times less likely to have a primary care physician nearby as opposed to people who don't live in overwhelmingly Black communities. So there are some real access gaps. And so how does that play a role in, in terms of people's likelihood to get the vaccine? Physicians, healthcare professionals, are some of the most trusted sources of information about vaccines that are out there. So if you don't have a primary care provider, if you don't have a doctor, number one, you're being cut off from that information, which is why she has to step into this gap, you know, in the ER. So you are missing out on a place to get your questions answered about the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine. But then also you're missing out on a resource in terms of knowing where to schedule appointments, where to go get a vaccine, being able to get a vaccine. So it really does cut you off from um, a big wealth of knowledge. So what has Dr. Wakama's experience been like having these conversations with patients day after day? Does she feel proud and excited at her ability to persuade people and get people those vaccines that they haven't otherwise been able to get? Or is it frustrating for her that it takes her, like a kind of random ER doctor, or at least random in these people's lives, to be that force for actually getting them a shot? 
she and I talked a lot about, you know, she touches on issues of maternal mortality, homelessness, lack of access, lack of providers. So she is there as like almost a safety net for a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have access to healthcare. And that's part of her mission and reason for becoming a physician. This kind of work is important to me, which is why I take the time to do it, and which is why I feel the need to work in a predominantly Black environment because majority of my patients don't have primary care doctors. And I make it my point every single time they come in, even if they're coming in for a splinter, to give them a primary care doctor or to talk to them about a primary care doctor. And so vaccinations for her are an extension of that mission. You know, it's something and a reason why she continues to step into that void. And it's something she takes really seriously and it's something she's really proud of. But does she think that there are other steps that should be taken on a larger scale to help more people of color in Philly become vaccinated? What does she think that the city or the county should be doing? She's very much what has been happening in her world. And for a while, it was very easy because she she was part of a resource where once she got people to yes, she could provide them a flyer and say, text this and we can register you for a vaccine appointment. And because interest is dwindling, Penn has canceled that effort. And so that has kind of become a bit of a roadblock and a bit of a barrier. But there are some other vaccine providers, particularly Dr. Ala Stanford, who runs the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium in Philly that has been, as the city says, one of the primary drivers in vaccinating you know, Black folks in Philly. And she very much has kind of said to me, well, what are other people doing? I can't be the only one. What are all these other vaccine providers doing in terms of helping to shrink the gap between Philly's communities of color, particularly its Black community and its white community, and vaccine access. So you said that that more people of color have now become vaccinated in Philly over the last few months, but that the gap between Black residents and white residents in terms of vaccination rates persists. So what is the answer to that in the future or what needs to happen to change that gap? If you're not thinking at that very strategic entrenched level, that's where these disparities grow and come from. You know, it's great to have policy at the top, but then it's how do you begin to implement it and how do you really begin to put the safeguards in place and the measures in place to make sure it gets to the grassroots level and and has the impact and the intention that you want. You know, for using Philly as kind of a microcosm, the intention based on what folks what the city are saying was that they always wanted an equitable response. Equity was supposed to be driving the vaccine response. That was the intention. The impact was very different. And the impact is very different because you've got to consider just the interconnectedness and the various kind of ways that economics, environment, housing, jobs, all of these things in broadband access, how they intertwine and affect people's lives to be able to register for a vaccine appointment and then show up. We spent a lot of time talking about hesitancy, but research shows you can get over hesitancy with education. And then you've got all of these other systems that are intertwined that can serve as a barrier in access. And if you're not thinking of those various things, that's how these disparities continue to, to, to grow and persist. Akila Johnson reports on health disparities for The Post. The story was produced by Sabi Robinson.
I recently started the seven-day newsletter to help readers get a better sense of their time management. A lot of us, myself included, have spent the last 12 plus months working at home and really not having a clear boundary between different parts of our lives. So my work-life balance was a disaster. Um, my calendar was out of control. And as things start to reopen and we start to reemerge from our homes, the idea of this project was, can I figure out a better, healthier balance? And that's why we created A Better Week. Tom Johnson is an editor on the Post social media team. He talked with intern Corey Suzuki. So day one, we really start to try to improve our relationship with your smartphone throughout the day. I don't really have a very healthy relationship with my phone. I think like a lot of journalists, I, I get kind of anxious if I'm not notified of every Slack message or email. So it was really bad. In total, I was spending just under four hours a day. I was getting more than 170 push notifications and picking my phone up about 170 times a day as well. How did you feel like notifications specifically affected how much you used your phone? For me, notifications are a special kind of interruption. The screen pops up, you know, it lights up when it's sitting on your desk. It vibrates when it's in your pocket. You don't really know whether it's something that really demands your attention immediately, whether it's like a text from a loved one or something urgent or just a push notification from an app that you forgot you downloaded. I'm sure some of those pickups were helpful, whether I was answering an important email or, or getting directions, but... The majority of those times, I think I was just picking it up uh, for a notification that didn't really matter and then getting sucked into Instagram or Twitter or Slack. And next thing I know, half an hour has elapsed and I'm not really sure what happened to my time. And so can you tell me about this tactic of batching notifications then? How does that work? So I initially got the idea from speaking to uh, Konstantin Kuslov, who's a behavioral scientist at Georgetown University. And he spent a lot of time researching the impact of smartphone usage on well-being. He'd essentially tested out this concept of batching push notifications, which means you group them so that instead of getting all your notifications throughout the day, whenever they happen to pop onto your phone, it puts all of them together and then you can manually decide how often do you want to be interrupted? And then you get them all at once instead of throughout the day. I guess I'm curious, what's the idea behind that of, of having these set intervals when you access your notifications as opposed to having them coming in sort of constantly? I think it makes it more of a deliberate choice. He basically had three test groups, people who got their normal usage where notifications were going on throughout the day, another group that didn't get any push notifications, and then a third group who were doing uh, batch notifications that came in three times a day. And he found that the batch notification group felt more productive and was overall in a better mood. Somewhat interestingly, and, and perhaps surprisingly, people felt more stressed when they actually had no notifications at all. He said that it seemed to increase anxiety and kind of that fear of missing out. So it seems like having batch notifications is a happy medium between not getting any and getting far too many throughout a day. Tom decided that he was actually going to try this, and he was amazed by the results. I went back to the dreaded screen time stats a week later, and I was really surprised. I picked up my phone 60 fewer times per day. I received 57 fewer push notifications. And in total, I used my phone about 30 minutes less per day, which might not sound like much, but at the end of the week, that was three and a half hours I saved. So like you mentioned, this is part of a week-long series. What else can we expect from the rest of the newsletter? 
The goal of this newsletter was not just to squeeze in a few more hours in the week so you can work more. Ultimately, it was to create a better relationship with time. So the rest of the week really dives into that topic. On Tuesday, we look at kind of carving out time for the friendships that we really care about. And towards the end of the week, we really get into the idea of a work-life balance and really creating a clear divide between Friday afternoon and Friday night. Tom Johnson is an editor on the Post social media team. Find the link to sign up for his newsletter in our show notes and at postreports.com. This story was produced by Corey Suzuki. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rena Flores and Ted Muldoon. You can help us out by giving us a review in your podcast app and sharing what you like about Post Reports. It helps other listeners find our show. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 